2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. And Ollie, can we have a trumpet blast, please? That's the sound of us blowing our own trumpet because our show has been shortlisted for best podcast launch of 2020 and best science podcast in the publisher yeah it's the publisher (laughs) podcast awards so uh, if we win we'll play the trumpets again very loudly and if we don't win we'll never mention it again. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the week's biggest news in science I'm Rowan Hooper I'm our podcast editor.
0: I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan I'm our features editor Joining us this week is new scientist reporter Michael LePage and science writer Caroline Williams. Hello. 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 Coming up on the show, we are looking at what is going on in the brain during gaslighting. We assess the latest findings on loss of ice around the world. We hear about a new way that computers can read our minds. And we're going to talk about building a particle collider the size of the galaxy. Because why not?
2: Yeah, why not? (laughs) Um, But before that, this is your last chance in January to get the special New Scientist bargain subscription offer.
0: Yes, New Scientist for half price for 12 weeks. Snap it up, go to newscientist.com slash pod12 to subscribe.
2: And after listening to this podcast, do listen and subscribe to our new show, Escape Pod, which is designed to whisk your mind away to calming, distracting and wonderful places. But first, this is episode 52 We've been going for a year now and to mark the occasion, I look back to our first episode. So let's just play this clip. This is Penny Sarchet, our news editor, talking about coronavirus in January 2020
1: this isn't a dress rehearsal. Uh, this has the full potential to become a pandemic. So all that would really take is for the virus
3: to
0: start um, spreading properly in more than one country, so outside of China. And there have already been a few cases in a few countries where there seems to have been person-to-person transmission. Um, so if any of those just really got going, that, that could be it. This could be a
2: global pandemic. And that just gives me the chills, that clip, because she's talking about the possibility of person-to-person transmission that's being reported, and the possibility that this could go into a full-blown pandemic and what happened after that, you know, and what an age we're living in. Uh, So, you know, now we've got 2.1 million deaths worldwide and over 100,000 deaths in the UK, and it's just really hard to take it all in. Um, We do need to celebrate that there's a vaccine already, and probably we all know people who've had it already – My parents have had it now, and it's just a huge relief. And more of us are going to be getting it over the next weeks and months. Now, Michael, you've been looking into what this means. So what what does it mean, though, once we've had one dose of the vaccine?
1: Well, the crucial thing to say is don't assume you're safe just because you've had one dose. Uh, You should definitely keep behaving as if you haven't been vaccinated until well after your second dose. And there are three reasons for that. Firstly, it takes at least two to three weeks for any protection to kick in after the first dose. So during this time, you're just as vulnerable as if you haven't been vaccinated. The second thing is it's still not clear exactly how much protection a single dose provides, but it could be as low as 50%. The third thing, uh, for those of us who live in the UK or the US where they're very high rate of infection still, that means your chances of being exposed to the virus are still very high. And, you know even if you're vaccinated, you actually your overall risk of, of getting infected could be higher than it was in the summer.
0: And and it's not just about the risk to you yourself, is it?
1: No, absolutely. It's really important to remember that this is not just about you. If you infect just one other person, you could start a chain of infection that leads to many deaths over the coming months and years. So the, the big unanswered question, the one that we really want to know the answer to, is whether the virus can spread invisibly among vaccinated people. Can it reach people who've been vaccinated or whom the vaccine hasn't protected well? Uh, We just don't know the answer yet, though there are lots of studies looking at it. But what we know from other sort of lines of evidence, it it seems it's probably likely that at least some vaccinated people will be able to spread the virus without showing symptoms. And that means even if you've been vaccinated, you could still possibly infect others. You could end up infecting family, friends, colleagues or other people.
2: Well, that's the kind of nightmare scenario, isn't it? So that even even after widespread vaccination, what, what does that mean about any return to normality?
1: So several groups in the UK have been modelling what could happen if all restrictions were relaxed as vaccination levels ramp up. And I've been really shocked by the results, um, just not what I expected, I have to say. Uh, the bad news is that these models suggest that even by April, when up to 30 million people in the UK might be vaccinated, relaxing all restrictions could lead to an even bigger wave of infections than we have now with more deaths. And that's not all. it gets It gets even worse. It's still possible that could happen even in December when most people have been vaccinated. It's really surprising. But the reason is, firstly, vaccines don't protect everyone and not everyone is going to get vaccinated. So even after vaccination is pretty much complete, there are still going to be millions of susceptible people. And that means if the vaccines are not really good at blocking transmission, not just illness, symptomatic illness, we could still have large outbreaks.
2: Yeah, I've, I have seen people saying that we should use this summer to prepare for next winter, which is which is quite galling. But um, it looks like that's that might be something we have to do. Uh, I, at this point, I feel obliged to point out that there is some non-doom laden stuff coming up later in the show. Tiff, but you've got a slight bit of good news as well, haven't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that the hits do keep coming with this pandemic. But um, I was at least encouraged to know that even though here in the UK so many of us are finding yet another lockdown quite difficult, um, a recent study from University College London showed that people really do get the importance of all the other measures, you know, maintaining social distance, wearing masks, um, staying home, and the vast majority of people are sticking to the rules. So that is a spot of good news.
1: I think it's important to say as well, these models are looking at all restrictions being relaxed when there's still a relatively high number of cases. So if we get case numbers right down before relaxing restrictions, and if we keep taking some sensible precautions, like wearing masks in crowded places, we should be able to avoid these worst case scenarios that the models are showing us.
0: Now that's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine that's already banned in science fiction. And let's hope it's not an alien invasion that destroys all life on Earth.
2: That would carry on with the theme of so far in the show. No, this is something different. Uh, This is Dyson Spheres, which are megastructures built in space around stars. Uh, They were proposed by the physicist Freeman Dyson. And he imagined that if you're a super advanced civilization, uh, you want to harness the power of your star so you can build a big sphere around it.
0: Yeah, so it's like a big engineering project, a kind of space solar power plant.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, quite a big one. Uh, and so big, he thought that Dyson thought these things would be worth looking for from Earth as a, a signs of alien super advanced intelligence.
0: So have we found any of them? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> OK.
2: <laughs> no, but we have got um, lots of new ways to look for them. And that's the subject of a big piece in the magazine this week by science writer Mordecai Rovig.
0: So the problem with this kind of astronomy is that if you find an interesting or suspicious signal, it could easily be some other kind of cosmic phenomenon, right? Like, it's actually more likely to be that than a sign of aliens.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's always more likely to be that. Um, <laughs> but because there's a tiny chance, tiny chance that it's aliens, people just can't stop going on about it really, and looking for it. Um and this is the thing, there are lots of much better ways to look now. And that's what this piece is about.
0: And presumably any super advanced alien civilizations out there would also build other massive structures that we might be able to see.
2: Yeah. So we talk about some of these too. And my favourite is a, a giant particle collider. So it's something like the Large Hadron Collider, but on an absolutely colossal scale. And I'd heard of um, space-based colliders before, um, and the one that sometimes people talk about is one that has the orbit of Mars. So it's still an absolutely gigantic project. But in this piece, we talk about a particle collider the size of a galaxy.
0: (laughs) That does seem a bit over the top.
2: (laughs) It does, doesn't it? I mean, I I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole thinking about this. Um, I mean, if you had one the size of a galaxy, it would take 300,000 years just to get a collision Because even nearly at the speed of light, that's how long it would take the particles to go around this uh, particle collider that's that big.
0: So I suppose it would take a really, really long time to build something like that in the first place. I mean, I know it took decades to plan and build the Large Hadron Collider, and that is about 27 kilometres in circumference. I (laughs) I checked. Um, So one that was, you know, as big as a galaxy?
2: Yeah, you'd have to be a really long-lived civilization. And then I wondered, uh, you know, if it's that big, how fast could you accelerate your particles to? So the LHC, it already gets to 99.9999991% the speed of light. So it's it's very close to the speed of light. But getting that bit faster is incredibly difficult. So you, you could build bigger and bigger and even galactic size particle collider and you'd still not actually be at the speed of light.
0: We'll have to come back to this. <laughs> fascinating questions some other time but for now what's the sci-fi link? Uh,
2: so Dyson spheres are absolutely all over the place in science fiction probably that's the only place you can really find them uh, uh, but the one I want to talk about is uh, I've just read an incredible book by Alastair Reynolds called House of Suns. Uh, it's set seven million years in the future and there are some really great mega structures in that and Dyson spheres uh, it's a really fabulous escapism that book.
0: Out, time to tell you about our family of newsletters. We now have six free newsletters Lost in Space about cosmology and quantum stuff, Fix the Planet about solutions to climate change, Health Check about medical news, Launchpad about space travel, Our Human Story about human evolution, and Wild Wildlife about the wonders of biodiversity.
2: Well done. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> go to slash newsletter if you want to hear that list again uh, and sign up to all of them. They're fabulous and informative and they're free. And while you're there, do check out our next live event. It's by Harvard professor Avi Loeb. He's a world famous astrophysicist and he's going to be talking about the search for extraterrestrial life.
0: Always a winner. And um, we'll be talking to him in a piece that's going to run in the magazine in an upcoming issue as well. The event is on February 11th. Go to newscientist.com slash events to sign up and find out about all the other cool events we've got lined up for the year. Now... There's been a lot of talk about gaslighting in recent years, not least in political arguments. This is a kind of psychological manipulation where one person undermines another's grasp on reality. Caroline, you explored this for a piece in the magazine this week. How does gaslighting work? Well, I think it's
3: gaslighting something that we all like to think couldn't happen to us, but it's a kind of manipulation that basically exploits some of the ways that our brains piece together our perception of reality. So while Our brains constantly take in huge amounts of sensory information, they can't process it all at once. So you can only take a little bit of that information at once. So how do we fill in the gaps then? Well, lots of neuroscientists think that we that we do this by our brains making predictions about the world and what's going on and what's likely to happen next, which is based on our previous experience. And because we all have different lives, we've had different experiences our perceptions of reality are slightly different. So that explains why two people can see the same event or have the same argument, but can perceive it very
0: differently. And the fact that we each effectively construct a kind of personal reality means that that reality can be fragile, I guess, it it leaves us vulnerable to people who want to distort it or undermine it. Yeah, because I
3: think one of our um, our weak spots is well, sort of a weak spot and a strength is that we're a social species and we have to rely on other people to make sense of the world around us. And there are lots of very reasonable situations when someone might disagree with you and it might be a good idea to listen to them. You know, it's very hard to check your own memory from within yourself or um, whether you saw what you think you saw based on just yourself. Sometimes, you know, we rely on other people to help us put together a picture of reality. Um, And that's sort of the that strength in some ways is also a disadvantage when there's somebody there who's trying to gaslight us. So
0: when does um, this sort of checking with other people who may disagree with you may challenge your perception of events, become something more worrisome? When does it become gaslighting?
3: Yeah, that's a really tricky one, because, um, you know, people do disagree with you. And sometimes you don't always like it. Um, The problem is when it becomes coercive, um, when somebody repeatedly undermines somebody, uh, questions their assessment of reality, and just sort of chips away for long enough that you start to question yourself and your experiences. And did you see what you thought you saw? And um, do you remember that conversation correctly? There, There sort of has to be some kind of Intent to deceive and to destabilise a person and gain control. That's when disagreements become gaslighting. So if you're having a disagreement, someone might say, oh, I don't see it like you, but that's interesting, isn't it? If someone says, no, you're seeing that all wrong, there's something wrong with you, then that's when it starts to be a problem. And then gaslighting like this can often be a central part of domestic abuse that's known as coercive control.
0: You mentioned before that we're all potentially vulnerable to this. Is that is that the case? Is is everyone potentially vulnerable to to gaslighting?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think some people are more vulnerable than others because of their particular life experience, but we do all share these weak spots. Um, one uh, psychiatrist I spoke to for the piece said, "You know, we always bring something to the table, so we don't." We don't see a faithful picture of the world. And so we're taking in other people's views on the world as well. And so we all have this kind of weak spot
0: where other people can gain access to our reality. So how can we, how can we spot it? How can we figure out if someone's trying to do this to us, if they're trying to gaslight us? Yeah, so I go
3: into this in, in a bit of detail in the feature. But um, there are a few distinguishing features of gaslighters. So if you challenge them, they will almost never back down. They won't admit they're wrong you know, they know what's real, and they don't need you to challenge them on that. They tend to be very critical um, of your character, of your intelligence, of your friends, you know, they try to isolate people from friends and family. So we do rely on other people to help confirm our view of reality. But if they narrow that down to just one person, then that can be an issue, because, you know, you, you need other people to
0: buffer your view of reality. Um, And and isolating you in this way, this effect can be really devastating, sort of ultimately making you question your mental well-being and and damaging your confidence.
3: Yeah, that's why it's such a problem and often features in domestic abuse. Thankfully, there's lots of charities that can help people who think they may be in this situation. um, And we'll link to to lots of these
0: in the show notes. I also know that the Freedom Programme, specifically here in the UK, has been invaluable for many women who have found themselves in this situation. But beyond seeking help from these types of organizations for, you know, for people who are in more extreme situations, um, what can can we all do to fight back against gaslighting?
3: So, yeah, I go into this in a bit more detail in in the magazine piece. But I guess the main takeaway is that we need to trust ourselves, to trust the feeling that something is wrong. So one of the researchers I spoke to said sometimes this can be a very physical feeling. You just can't put your finger on it, but something doesn't feel quite right. And you know giving up your faith in your own perception of reality is a huge thing to do so so don't give that up without strong evidence that you aren't really seeing the world the way that it is
2: and now it's time for climate hope or doom where we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or empty we think the glass is looking Uh, this week it's ice loss.
0: Yeah, satellite data released this week shows that globally 28 trillion tonnes of ice disappeared between 1994 and 2017, equivalent to a sheet of ice 100 metres thick covering the whole of the UK.
2: Yeah, we try not generally to steer into doom too much on this segment, but the lead scientist of the study, who's uh, Thomas Slater of the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling, he said the ice sheets are now following the worst case climate warming scenarios set out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
0: Well, it's really not good. The study shows a 65% increase in the rate of ice loss over the 23 years of the survey. And as if this wasn't bad enough, when you lose ice, you lose the reflective cooling effects it has. So ice reflects sunlight. But if you have no ice, the land instead absorbs the heat and heats up even more.
2: Uh, yeah, and the sea does it too. And that's why the Arctic is warming faster than any other place on the planet. And that's just one of the reasons we have to really think about how to reverse ice loss. Uh, and not just through cutting emissions as fast as we can, but through, I think, through solar radiation management, Which the, and these are ideas to try and reduce the amount of sunlight getting in. And the trouble is very little research has been done into these things. So we just don't know how feasible uh, and how dangerous they might be. And I do talk about this in my new book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, though it would only take a fraction of that amount to do just some proper research on solar radiation management. Um, But Michael, look, it's not just warming, is it? It's the sea level rise. So the ice melt described in this study has led to sea level rise of 35 millimetres so far.
1: Yes, I'm afraid the really bad news is that this is just the beginning. What what the study suggests is that sea level rise is, is starting to increase exponentially as various feedback kicks in, as as many scientists have long predicted. And the thing to understand is all that, that massive amount of ice that's locked away in the great ice sheets covering Antarctica and Greenland, that built up over hundreds of thousands of years of snowfall. Once it melts, there's no putting it back. You know, we can't reverse sea level rise. I think people are going to start to wake up to this in a few decades' time. But by that stage, it could already be too late to save many coastal cities around the world. In fact, it could well be too late already.
2: Yeah. So go on. What are the things we need to do?
1: Well, number one is obviously to stop pumping more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's great to see Biden taking more action on climate this week. Uh, The less the planet warms, the less sea level rise there'll be. But I think the second thing is we've, we've got to start thinking, planning for the future and stop building loads of major infrastructure on cities on low-lying coasts that are already sort of doomed to become flooded. I, I think it's absolutely crazy that nothing has been done about coastal development in most countries.
2: Yeah, yeah. We did mention that some uh, a few weeks ago, didn't we, on the podcast? Um, and number three, I would say, is let's fund a little bit of research or let's fund some research into geoengineering solutions in case the worst happens.
0: Well, At least there's a sprinkling of hope on that rather generous helping of climate doom. (laughs) Right, let's change tack. Mind reading. Rowan, what's new in mind reading this week?
2: Well, we've reported all sorts of things over the years. And basically, uh, these are about attempts to decode what people are thinking or even dreaming sometimes by using uh, fMRI scanners or EEG on the brain surface.
0: So, EEG, electroencephalogram. So, electrodes on the brain or on the skull that record brain activity. Got that first time. from twister. <sighs> Sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, it always involves recording loads of brain waves. And then you get an artificial intelligence, uh, a, ne- a neural network, learn which brain waves correspond to words or thoughts.
0: Yeah. So this is often done with people who are paralysed or unable to physically speak, but it might give them the ability to communicate again. So what's happened now?
2: So it's similar, except now the AI can look into look at your brainwaves and from them identify what song you're listening to.
0: <laughs> These days, in my case, it's almost definitely something from Moana.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, same here, actually. Um Yeah, so in this experiment, they they got twenty people and listened to. They had them listen to a series of twelve songs. A lot of them were Bollywood songs because a lot of uh, Indian researchers in this paper, um, on headphones, and they while their while their brainwaves were being recorded, Uh, and then a neural network was trained to spot patterns between the music clips and the brainwaves, and then identify the song. And then the really cool thing is that the AI could then take a bit of the brainwaves from when you're listening to the song, but not a bit of the brainwaves it had seen before. And then from that, it could still identify the song.
0: Wow, that that's really cool. So if the AI measures my brainwaves when I'm listening to a song, will it be able to listen to your brainwaves as you listen to the same song and still guess right? No. <laughs> ah, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's because we have different emotional responses to songs. So... Uh, I also love I love the Moana songs. Right. But I might be getting a little bit sick of them now, you know, whereas, you know, I don't know. You might still just be in the first phase of loving them. Uh, or just recently, I've been listening to the uh, Rufus Wainwright's uh, new album. And I don't know, you might not be moved by him in the same way as I am. <laughs> so, you know, that's why the the AI w- will, will guess differently for even if you're listening to the same song.
0: But that is quite interesting, isn't it? You know, quite deep. So that, that means that in order to do this, the AI is starting to identify and understand what moves each of us emotionally?
2: Yeah. So we spoke to a researcher, uh, Derek Lomas, at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And he said, uh, I think it's really provocative to think about how the combination of machine learning and data from EEG can be combined to bring insights into moving emotional experiences, but also to figure out what's going on inside your head. Wow! Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then he kind of spoiled that, and he said something really hel- kind of hilarious, like, probably unintentionally and uh, very Spock-like. He said, uh, "Music is just ultimately, uh, it's just voltage fluctuations, and it's the same with EEG."
0: <laughs> I think the rock would disagree with his rendition of <laughs> "You're Welcome." <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's all for this week thanks for listening for the whole year uh do carry on listening uh, and subscribe and do subscribe to our sister show escape pod this week is all about alliances
0: yes and thank you michael and caroline for joining us remember last chance to get your special january bargain go to newscientistcom pod 12 for more information goodbye for now and take care out there bye
1: bye bye bye, bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
0: This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way.